morning, everybody. You ever find yourself wondering how you got to where you are in this moment? Like, um, you know, you're just going along with life and taking whatever comes towards you and then suddenly you're a youth pastor? Well, that's what happened to me. Um, and you're like, what do I, how do I do this? There's so many tricky, there's so many fun things in youth ministry and so many tricky things when you're a pastor, like tricky conversations, but we all walk into those kind of things, right? These pastoral moments where you're not really sure what to do. Like um, someone close to you is grieving because they've lost someone or something and you just don't know what to say next. Or one of your kids is dealing with doubts and you're really scared about what to say because you don't want them to lose faith and you want to encourage them but you don't want to you don't want to stuff it up tricky right pastoral moments are really tricky or <clears throat> there's someone that you know and love and you can see they're doing something bad and how do you confront them in that? We all have these pastoral moments that we walk into that just seem to fall into our lap or land on our shoulders. Um, and you're not really sure what to do next, right? Little hint, they don't just fall in your lap or land on your shoulders. You don't just accidentally walk into them. God's putting them there. But how, how can we be good pastors in that moment? Um, we're looking at Simon Peter, right? He started as a fisherman, and there on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus calls to him and says, no more fish, Peter. You're going to be fishing for people now. Come and follow me. So Peter becomes a fisher of people, and he becomes a disciple. And then three years later, he's back there at the shore of Galilee, and Jesus gives him a new call. He says, Peter, feed my lambs. Become a shepherd. Become a pastor. Peter had really good days as a fisherman. He also had really bad days, bad nights as a fisherman. Um, how's it going to be as a pastor? <laughs> Luke tells us in Acts, um, and it's a really surprising and it's an encouraging report. Because a, a good pastor is a blessing. Um, we might not be called to all the pastoral kinds of ministry that, that Peter was called to, but we've got the same resources that he had to bless the people that, that God has placed in front of us. And I'm, I'm praying that we'll be blessed today by the ministry of Pastor Simon Peter. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for the way you know us and you love us. And um, Lord Jesus, you are the great shepherd and you want to shepherd us and draw us closer to you and, and care for our every need. And we thank you for the people that you've placed in our lives as pastors and those you've placed in our lives for those pastoral moments who've tended to our needs and pointed us to you. Um, 
And we think of all the tricky things, the moments, the conversations that, that we land in that we don't know what to do. Please um, guide us this morning. Encourage us, strengthen us this morning for those moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, so Acts chapter 4. Now, verse 32. Now the full number <clears throat> of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. They'd seen him. Their testimony was vivid, right? And great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. This is a really healthy church, right? The apostles are giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're proclaiming the gospel, right? And they're faithful pastors in that. And here is this faithful church with the gospel front and center, and the Holy Spirit was blessing them with this great grace. And there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and they laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. They shared everything, right? Because they were looking out for each other's needs. They were showing grace and they were filled with the grace of the Spirit. And then enjoying, enjoying the grace of the Spirit who moves hearts like that, right? What a, what a flock to be in. Like, this is a really healthy church. So how's Peter going as a pastor? Seems pretty good, right? But he, he hasn't been mentioned here yet. Because um, the star of the show is the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is doing the moving. And this is when things are at their best. When everything points to the greatness of God. That is great grace. So first thing to think about is what does great grace look like here? What could it look like here? It's not necessarily about us selling our houses and land and, and just pulling the funds. But what would it look like to be of one heart and soul? To be characterized by great grace. That the Holy Spirit of great grace is stirring our hearts to think of the needs of each other and lay our lives down for the sake of each other and share what we have, what would that look like here, today, like here? How could the Holy Spirit move you to great grace today? The good pastor sees great grace and acts on it. Luke gives us Barnabas as an exemplar of this great grace, right? He sold a field and he brought it to the apostles' feet for the love of the people in the church. He sees a need and he's like, I can, I can help there. And he, he comes in and gives it great grace. But it's not all great. Chapter 5, we meet a guy. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. Okay. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds. And he brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. He's not quite the same as good old Barnabas. So how is Pastor Peter going to handle this tricky situation? Um, not quite how I would have handled it, but here we go. But Peter said, Ananias, 
Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And Peter cut straight to the heart. He says, Ananias and Sapphira, you didn't need to sell the land. And you didn't need to give all the money to the church. You could have kept some of it back, but you've lied, pretending to give it all. Why would you do that? Why would they do that? It's to get recognition, right? To be seen as these benevolent people, um, great people, just giving everything. What wonderful people, Ananias and Sapphira. But what they're doing is they're hedging their bets because... They're leaning into two different spaces in this moment. Like, so, so they've sold this land and they've got this money, but they're like, we need some of this money to feel secure, to, to, yeah, to feel safe. So they've held on to some of it. And so they're, they're leaning into um, money to, to feel secure. But then they come and bring the rest and say, this is all of it. Because they want people to be impressed. So they're leaning here into possessions to feel secure. And over here, they're leaning into the opinions of others to feel secure. Um, falsely. But that's where they're finding their security and hedging their bets in two different places and not relying on God or showing reverence for God, or compassion like God. Barnabas gave all his money, and the compassion he had was from God for the people, right? And he had to rely on the goodness of God to say, God, it's all yours. These people need it. I'm relying on you. <clears throat> so you read this episode, and you have to ask yourself, you have to, where is my heart in my giving? Or is it with God? Peter knows the truth about Ananias. And it seems that it's because the Holy Spirit has revealed it to him. He knows where Ananias' heart is at. And Peter, good pastor, he's not worried about the money. It's not that they haven't brought the whole money and he's like, oh, we could have used the rest of that. Um, but... He's not worried about that. He's worried about Ananias' heart. So Peter, he pulls no pastoral punches here. He cuts to the heart of the matter. Gutsy. <laughs> I find that almost impossible to do as a pastor. Because I really like people. And I really like people to like me. So I want to avoid any uncomfortable conversation like that. Because number one, I don't want those people to stop liking me. And number two, because I know that being confrontational, pointing something out in someone else, that immediately puts the spotlight on me. And how many times have I 
said half-truths or been half-hearted. I don't want the spotlight on any of that in me. And I know all my imperfections, so how can I point the finger at someone else? And those two things, like I said, they make it almost impossible for me to have those hard conversations like Peter did. It's only by the grace of God. You know, you've got that moment where you have to confront someone, and I don't want to do it, and the the only way I will do it and can do it is by prayer. Got to pray. Got to pray first. And here's Peter, and he's going at it with crystal clear truth. He's great pastoring. He's not falling into the same temptation as Ananias and Sapphira. He's not concerned about what people think of him in that moment. He is consumed with the greatness of God. How dare anyone lie to the Holy Spirit? And that drives his approach as a pastor to speak the truth in that moment. And if it would drive us, let's remind ourselves of the greatness of God the greatness of God and the horror of our sin as it plays out against God's greatness. That'll drive us to fear, a healthy fear. What happens next is a really unique event in the unfolding history of the early church. The Holy Spirit gives us a teachable moment. We need to fear God. Verse 5, when Ananias heard these words from Peter, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. And the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Um, Youth ministry experts, they talk about the need to... um, display keychain leadership. It's this idea of giving the young people opportunities, handing over the keys to them to do ministry, to learn and to be involved and to grow. And so here is Peter, the pastor, good keychain leadership. Let's get the youth involved. Could you just go and bury the dead guy that God just killed? It gets weirder. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Like this, this is a weird pastoral approach. Like, not to let Sapphira know what has just happened to her husband, let alone reporting to the authorities that the guy just died in our church. Um, We buried him, but yeah. Different times, right? It's a different culture too. Um, And just thinking about it, what? Why did they just do that just so quietly? But here is a guy who has been caught out lying to the Holy Spirit and then he's been struck dead. That is a, that's a big thing, right? That's a shameful thing. And maybe it's this gentle pastoral thing to just gather him up quietly and go and bury him. Tricky, tricky moment of pastoral ministry right there. Verse 8, And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, 
for so much. So again, I'm thinking, this is weird, Peter. Like, this is, I don't know about your pastoral approach here, because it seems like he's just setting her up, letting her walk into the trap. Did you sell it for this much? Yes, you sold it for that much. Bam! But when we read it carefully, Peter's actually giving Sapphira this chance to confess and repent. He's not forcing her hand by saying, just to let you know, before I ask you this question, your husband died for the answer that he just gave. He's not forcing her hand. He's letting it be between her and God. What's it gonna, are you going to be honest to God here? How are you going to answer? This is a really tricky situation for Peter, right? Good pastoring needs wisdom and insight, and you only get that from the Holy Spirit. We've got all these puzzling things. What do I say? What do I not say to the, the person who's in front of me? We need insight. We need to lean into the Holy Spirit when we're faced with our own tricky situations, our own people that we need to have these pastoral moments with. We need to ask the Holy Spirit for wisdom. Anyway, but Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. God is to be feared. Our lives are in his hands. He knows everything that's going on in our hearts right now. He has every right to strike us down right now where we sit, where we stand. God is to be feared. That should spark a, a healthy fear of God. To be a church where the people, where the pastors have a great and healthy fear of God, acting honestly and openly, no pretenses, no just wanting people to like us or leaning onto stuff that's not Him, wanting His glory above all else. Good pastoring is characterized by great grace and a great and healthy fear, and there's more great stuff to come. Verse 12, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Amen? These are people we are going to meet one day. So that they even carried out the sick into the street and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And the people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Shadow, Peter's shadow. They're bringing people just, what is the deal with that? This is weird stuff, right? I mean, later on, we hear about how people... God allowed people to be healed by touching Paul's hanky. It's kind of odd to think that, ironic now these days. Healed by a hanky. Um, but 
what is happening here? It doesn't necessarily say that the people were healed by Peter's shadow, but these people wanted to draw closer to Peter because they could see that something powerful, something, someone powerful is at work here in this guy, and people are being healed, and, and we, want, we want to be part of that. This is this great power that Luke's described the church as having. So question, should we expect the same from our pastors today? Should we have people gathered around sitting next to Pastor Graham and just in a shadow there and just see what happens? No. <laughs> he loves people sitting near him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and there's heaps of room up here. You might want to try it now. He's a very friendly guy. Who knows? Um, again, this is a unique moment in church history where... What does it say? Many signs and wonders were regularly done. Um, signs and wonders accompanied the apostles' message, proclaiming the gospel. And the Holy Spirit stamped his approval on what they were saying with signs and wonders. So people would stand up and take notice. Everybody, look, listen to the apostles. See what's happening. This is special. But not all publicity is good publicity. Verse 17. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles, and they put them in a public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go. Stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life, capital L, life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Question, who has the power in this situation? Where does the great power sit? It's with God, right? He is the one in control here. He's sent an angel to open the door. <laughs> High priest. Get the angel, come out, come on guys. I want you to go back to the place where you got in trouble and do the same thing again. Because I am the powerful one here and you know that and you can have confidence to do that. And so what do they do next morning? Back in the temple. Because they know who has great power. And so um, the next few verses, they get almost comical. The high priest, <clears throat> he's, he's like an owl ruffling its feathers to look bigger and more intimidating. And he gathers together all the Senate and, and the council there to gather together and, come on, guys, we're gonna, we'll bring them in and we'll crush them once and for all. And then he, send for the prisoners. And so the officers go off to the prison and they, yeah, it's locked. The prisoners aren't there. And so they're sheepishly back to the high priest. Look, I swear the doors are locked, but they're not in there. And so the high priest is like, and as they're wondering what's going on, someone, someone runs in and says, we found them. They're back in the temple doing the same thing again. Great power, right? And it's... It's crazy what was going on there. It's just a farce. But when we recognize how great the power of God is, 
then the power of human institutions or anyone who wants to ruffle their feathers and intimidate you about your faith and what you believe in just becomes comical compared to the great power of God, right? Amen? Great power. When we recognize God's great power, the rest of it just fades away. Verse 27, And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name, yet here you fill Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Feathers ruffled. How's Peter the pastor going to respond? But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. And this is the response, not just of a great pastor or any pastor, this is the response for anyone. We must obey God and not men. And the pastor Peter goes on. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, amen, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter's got his chance here before the council to speak of Jesus. Um, And here's the good pastor. He's been locked up, dragged before the courts. He's been bullied for what he believes. Is he going to lash out and fight back? Is he he just going to cower away and run and hide? Nah. In the face of persecution, Peter shows them grace. He preaches the gospel to his enemies. He talks to them about redemption and the forgiveness of sins. This is a great witness. No matter what is happening, to keep speaking to the people all the words of this life, capital L, life. I don't think you're being dragged before a Sanhedrin this week or thrown in prison, but there are these tricky moments. How can you bring great witness to the words of this life into these moments you have? When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them, which is a a reminder to us that gospel proclamation doesn't always win us friends. We shouldn't expect it to. We shouldn't think that we'll still have the security of people liking us, but we do have a great God who has great power and great grace. So we need to keep witnessing. But they're not happy. And it's revealing that when the Sadducees heard Peter speaking about Jesus being raised from the dead, their their immediate reaction is to kill them. Let's kill them all. Because the Sadducees, they didn't believe in resurrection from the dead. Um, So this message that Peter's saying, Jesus has risen from the dead, it offends them, uh, let alone the fact that he's pointing to them as the ones who killed him. So their solution is kill them off. Because for them, death is 
the end of everything. So just kill off your problems. Which is not a very pastoral, pastoral approach for these people who are meant to be the shepherds of Israel, the pastors of Israel. So if something gets too hard, just kill it off. And us, in our pastoral moments, I think there is a massive temptation to do that kind of thing. It's too hard, just kill it off. Walk away from that relationship. Or just bury your head in the sand, kill it off. Or just hold your breath and hope it'll go away, kill it off. But these were people who were thinking that death is the end. That once someone's dead, that's it. But we live in resurrection life, right? Death is never the end. So that idea that, that life goes on and what we do here and now has eternal significance, that plays out in the way we speak in these pastoral moments. That there is always hope. That don't kill off these moments to be able to step in with great grace and great fear and great power to be a great witness to Jesus in these moments, to love people, to speak the hard things, to sit with people in the puzzling moments and, and know that you're there with the God who raises the dead, right? That should give us confidence, however tricky the situation is we're in. God can do amazing things. Is that encouraging? That, that is encouraging, right? And now, here's the surprising thing, is that um, <clears throat> this is the Sadducees' approach, just kill them all. And then someone steps in to stand up for the apostles, and it's a Pharisee, this guy Gamaliel. And he, he says something quite intriguing. He says, look, there's been other people, there's been Thutis and Judas the Galilean who've come in the past, and they've tried to cause a stir, and they've had all these people come and follow them, and then they've been killed, and everything's just fizzled out. So, verse 38, in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it's of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. I was thinking, like, what's going on in... Gamaliel's head right there. Is he just trying to be diplomatic? Oh, he's the Sadducee. He's trying to kill everyone again. No, stop. Like, is he just trying to be dri diplomatic and just um, calm the situation down? Or has he seen something in these people that's causing a bit of healthy fear in him to say, whoa, whoa, maybe stop? Or is it the Holy Spirit doing a classic Holy Spirit thing we're proclaiming the truth ironically through someone who wasn't knowing what they were really saying. Because whatever it was for Gamaliel, when we read it from our perspective, 2,000 years on, when he's like, it's probably going to fade out. And if it doesn't, well, it's probably from God. And here we are, 2,000 years later, is it of God? Did it fizzle out? Did it get bigger? Has God's great grace spread out through the whole world? Amen. Yeah, right? So this guy, he's proclaiming the truth that God is God and God is good. I love that. This plan will not fail. 
It didn't fail. It will never fail, especially when it's accompanied by this great grace from the Holy Spirit and great fear of God on our part and his great power at work in ways we can't even imagine. We can be this great witness. So how's Peter doing as a pastor? It was a few years back, um, I got a note from uh, my mentoring pastor, and it said this. When you preach... Don't seek people to say, what a great preacher he is, but instead to say, what a great saviour he serves. That's a good pastor. And you might not have picked it up, but as we track through chapter five, something happens with Peter. He fades into the background. Like near the start, it's all Peter, 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 Peter. And then he's in there less and less. He's there, right? And he's doing the things he's called to do, but it's not so much about Peter anymore. Peter's not the one in the spotlight anymore. It's all about Jesus, the Lord Jesus. And the spotlight is on him and the great power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter is just smiling in the background. That's being a good pastor. What a great saviour he serves. Let the saviour be the great one. Less of me, more of Christ. And Peter's example is not just for pastors, because if you're convinced that Jesus is Lord, then you're filled with the same Holy Spirit who is working in Peter. Don't just think about the shadows thing. Think about the insight. Think about the wisdom and the courage to keep stepping out and doing things. That same Holy Spirit at work in us, the immeasurably great power at work in those who believe. You have been given great grace, great power. So with this great and healthy fear, you can be a great witness in those pastoral moments that Don't just fall into your lap or land on your shoulders, but are placed there by God. As he shepherds us and cares for us, he wants us to do it for others. And we can walk into those situations knowing that he will do something great. So this morning, I want you to think of your great potential. Not because of anything in you, but because of who is in you, the Holy Spirit. The greatness of him dwelling in you to be able to, in those moments, see him do something amazing with your, your friend who's grieving, that you might be able to pass to them well, that, that kid who's wrestling with doubts, As you're leaning into God and fearing God, they're seeing it. And the Holy Spirit is ministering to them. For the person that you you know you need to help them by reining them in, God's going to help you in that as well. And he's going to get great glory out of it. Let's be a church of great grace and great fear and great power and be this great witness.
to the truly great one, Jesus Christ, who pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, you are the great one. And you know everything about us, everything in us. And you orchestrate. And this is the amazing thing. You put your Holy Spirit in us and called us to follow you. To be one in heart and soul. To care for each other. And um, we are overwhelmed and puzzled and stressed and scared in the moments because we don't know what to say or do. But you do. You do. Give us... Give us the grace to be able to care for each other and love each other, to see the need, to lay all we have at your feet and see you do great things. In Jesus' name.